If you're new to Frontline Church, what we typically do on Sundays, in addition to confessing our sins and receiving the assurance of the gospel and singing beautiful songs about who God is and breaking bread together and praying for one another, we typically open up books of the Bible and we preach through those books. We love doing that. We really believe that the Bible is God's authoritative word. And we think that preaching should be rooted in the Bible should come from the Bible and be about Jesus because the whole Bible is about Jesus. So we love walking through books of the Bible. The next book we're gonna do is the beginning of Matthew. In just a few weeks, we're gonna walk through the Sermon on the Mount and it's gonna be amazing. Can't wait to do that. We're in a sermon series right now called Rooted. And I think what that basically means is here's a bunch of stuff that we really need to talk about. True story. <laughs> And so what we've been doing for the last few weeks is we've been addressing some really difficult topics around spiritual formation and mission and obedience to Jesus. And we've been looking at the kind of whole scope or the whole counsel of God on those topics. And we've been leaning into those things. So three weeks ago, we walked through the connection between identity and action, right? We live in this weird cultural moment where we can sort of divorce our identity in Jesus from our action in Jesus. And we talked about how identity forms and creates and fuels action in the world. We talked about how grace, the love of God, should fuel obedience in our lives. Not perfectly, but with great focus and direction that grows over time. And then last week, we talked about how the person and work of Jesus should inform the way we work, our jobs, our vocations. Today, we're going to be talking about singleness, about singleness. And I want to say a couple of things up front before we dive into this. Two things come to mind on this topic and the topic of marriage. One is boxing, two is Hinduism. Here's what I mean. A little weird, but track with me. Um, my son's learning how to box and he's got the benefit of having really good trainers. And those trainers are working with him for the first several months of learning to box on defense. This is not something I ever learned when I boxed, right? The whole concept of it's a good idea to not get punched in the face. And so they're working with him on how to slip the jab and how to slide back and how to position yourself so that you don't get damaged in the boxing ring. Now, here's what this has to do with the Bible. And in particular, when we talk about sexuality and relationships, we are really good at our defensive moves when it comes to slipping Jesus's jabs. We're really good at it. We're really good at it. We're really good at taking our life experience and our values and our beliefs and imposing all of that on Jesus's word instead of having an honest hearing with what he says and being willing to be deconstructed in ways that are helpful and reconstructed to look more like Jesus. So the temptation when we open up the Bible and we say, hey, here's a conversation about sexuality or money or marriage. The temptation is we all go into defense mode and we start bobbing and moving and slipping the jabs of God's word instead of realizing that when those things actually connect with the parts of our lives that don't line up for his will, it's a good thing he's doing for us. He's just trying to help us live lives that line up with ultimate reality for our joy, right? The second thing that comes to mind is Hinduism. I love India. I just love it, man. I love that we're planting a church in Mumbai this next year. I love the fact that I got to live in India for a year. I love Indian cultures. I love Indian food. I love traveling in India. And one of the things that strikes me is how often Hindu friends will hear the gospel of Jesus and they will take a crucifix 
or any other symbol of Christianity, a cross or a trinket, and they'll add that symbol of Christianity to their family cabinet that contains other deities that they worship and offer allegiance to. So here's the idea, like I pray to Ganesh in hopes that he's gonna do X, Y, and Z to make my life better. And now you're telling me about a deity I didn't know named Jesus. And so I'll add Jesus into my pantheon of gods in hopes that Jesus will make my life better. And the problem with that is that that's not just a Hindu thing. That's exactly what we're tempted to do as followers of Jesus today in this cultural moment, right? Jesus for us becomes a means to an end, right? So if you want to have a great career, worship Jesus. He'll be a great life coach, If you want to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, worship Jesus. He'll get you the stuff you need to be happy, right? If you want a spouse and you don't have one, worship Jesus. And you can go to Christian conferences where you're guaranteed that if you wait till marriage, God's definitely going to be manipulated with his arm behind his back to give you the spouse you always dreamed of. And the problem with that is that's just not the gospel. Jesus is not a means to an end. What we see in scripture is that he is the end. He is the end. And to become a Christian is to bow your knee to Jesus as the treasure of life and as the master of life and to actually submit to him. So today, as we talk about singleness, I recognize that there is no way for me to truly do justice to all that the Bible says about singleness in one talk. So I'm asking you to be patient with me. I'm asking you to give me grace. Uh, I love the fact that we're a church with great diversity. We've got tons of different ethnic backgrounds and we've got different economic levels in our church. And I love, especially here at Frontline Downtown, that we have about as many single people as married people. I love that because that's what a biblical church in the heart of the city should look like. That we're people that come together to be formed and to figure out how to do life together as a kingdom outpost that points to Jesus. So a couple of things up front. One, if you're married, it would be deeply unloving and unhelpful for you to shut down right now. Because your single brothers and sisters need you to do life with them in a way that understands the call of Jesus for their life, just like they need to understand the calling of Jesus for your life. So if you're married, don't shut down. Like this is not the time to get on Facebook. This is the time to listen, to listen. In addition, if you're married, there's things about the vocation of singleness that shape all of life, including the vocation of marriage. So be with us in this moment, sit in this moment. If you're single, be patient with me. I'm not gonna get to all the questions and concerns which are really diverse in this room. Uh, People found out I was gonna talk about singleness this week and I had some single people saying, listen, the main thing you need to talk about is how guys that are single spend all their time playing video games and looking at porn. And then I had other single people that said, don't, do a singleness sermon and pretend that all we do is play video games and look at porn. We're working 80 hours a week and we have to mow our own lawns with no help. And so I get, man, there's like tons of concerns in the room. And so what I wanna do today, I hope, is I wanna show you how the way of Jesus actually holds up singleness in a radically different way than the traditional view of marriage and, and family. And it holds up singleness in a radically different way than the progressive view of marriage and family. See, here's what I mean. The traditional view of marriage and family and singleness is that family, blood family, biological family is the source of legacy and security. So even woven into sort of a first century Jewish reading of the old covenant was that God would multiply offsprings through the line of Abraham to bless the world. 
to bless the world. And there's truth in that, but that's something that Jesus catches up into the scope of the gospel and redefines through his cross and resurrection. Right? The traditional view of marriage and singleness sees singleness at best as a taboo. Some of you were raised in churches where singleness was framed up as this kind of weird state that's like a liminal state between really being a full person that gets married, right? That you're just kind of in the plane circling the runway until you finally get married and then you get to land and life starts. That's related to the traditional view of marriage and singleness. Often in this view, singleness is framed up as a failure instead of a holy and beautiful calling. In this view, Often, singleness is considered second rate. And here's what I want you to get. The traditional view of marriage and singleness actually idolizes, worships, finds core identity and core meaning in marriage and family in a way that Jesus actually calls idolatry. Idolatry. We don't believe, we don't believe that biological family is unimportant because Jesus upholds the Old Testament commandment for children to obey and honor their moms and dads. Jesus holds up the beauty of marriage, saying that husbands and wives are to love each other in a way that reflects his relationship with the church. All of that is true and beautiful and good. But listen, Jesus subordinates biological family to the kingdom of God. And he connects us as brothers and sisters, and he places a high call on singleness. So some of you in this room, you may not know it, but you have, you have a traditional view of marriage and singleness that doesn't look like Jesus's view. You're trying to get things out of your marriage that only Jesus can give you. Or you're waiting for things in your life that you can only experience in Jesus that you're expecting children to give you. We want to deconstruct that view through the words of Jesus. Now, if you're more progressive, here's the progressive view of marriage, sex, and singleness. At the end of the day, it all boils down to the great American obsession with autonomy, with autonomy. I want to be free at any cost. I want to be free to self-actualize. I want to be free to chase my dreams. I don't want the burdens of family and marriage. I want to be free to maximize whatever my interests are. I don't want anybody that can slow my role and add any boundaries to my life. The progressive view of marriage and singleness tends to be pessimistic towards marriage, right? It tends to view marriage as caving in and selling out, right? Like think of all you could have got done if you didn't get married. It idolizes independence and freedom. And here, here at the very heart of that is the great divorce. It's a divorce between sex and covenant. Sex and covenant. The Bible is unapologetically pro-sex. It's, it's a book that talks about sex and celebrates sex. It's not a book that's puritanical or afraid of sex, but it's a book that frames sex in a covenantal relationship, a bond between a husband and a wife that reflects Jesus and the church. And we're in this weird cultural moment where we've done the opposite of what God says. We've said that fulfillment and joy is found in hoarding money, right? Hoarding money, and sharing our bodies with anybody we want. But what the New Testament teaches and what the early church believed is actually, you're not to share your body with anybody other than your spouse and you're to share your money with everybody. <laughs> and we've got it backwards. We've reversed it. We've flipped it. 
We live in this weird cultural moment that teaches us that you actually can't be a self if you can't gratify your sexual urges. And so in these two views, this traditional view that sort of worships marriage and family and this progressive view that worships autonomy and self-freedom, Jesus steps into the fray of both of those views and he deconstructs them, not with like a mushy middle ground view, but with a radically different way to view human flourishing. The view of Jesus is beautiful. So what I want to do today is give you an overview, right? I want to give you six things that the Bible presents as truths that should frame the way you view singleness. They should frame the way you view singleness. And we'll start with the really broad and then we'll get more specific. So number one, first truth, Jesus is better than both marriage and singleness. Jesus is actually better than marriage and Jesus is better than singleness. He's better than both. Uh, There was a church that gives me a lot of hope for our church. It was the Corinthian church. And when I get really frustrated and overwhelmed by how messed up our church is, which usually happens Mondays between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m., and I start to feel overwhelmed, like, are we even a church? Are we even moving forward? I love to pick up the book of 1 Corinthians because it's one of the few churches in the history of the world that's even more messed up than our church. And what you had in the church at Corinth is you had these people writing Paul opinions and questions to ask him for his wisdom. And here's what you did in the church of Corinth. You divided up between people that had more of a progressive view and people that had more of a liberal view about sex and sexuality. So you had Corinthians that were like, hey, Paul, isn't it awesome how amazingly liberated we are on sex that you can sleep with whoever you want and it's great because we have the grace of Jesus. And Paul's like, actually, let me correct that very carefully. Let me reframe sex in the covenant of marriage. And then you had Christians in Corinth that were like, Paul, aren't we really spiritual that we're married and we still don't have sex? And Paul's like, you're actually dumb. Let me show you why, right? (laughs) And in that correction in 1 Corinthians chapter seven, he does something that's really important that reframes both singleness and marriage around the greater treasure of Jesus. So let me read it to you. First Corinthians chapter seven, starting in verse 32. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. Anybody in the room that would like a helping of that? The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. His interests are divided. The unmarried or betrothed, literally that word betrothed in the Greek is virgin. The unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay restraint upon you, but to promote good order and listen to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So he's going to give a lot of practical instructions about married people and single people. But at the end of the day, here's what he's saying. I'm fighting for you to have undevoted devotion to Jesus. Because if you take marriage and you aim the deepest longings of your heart on the institute of marriage, you're going to be so frustrated and let down. You're going to be disappointed at every turn. Right? Um, my wife and I struggled in all the ways that new marriages struggle when we first got married. We fought over all the typical stereotypical stuff over money and sex and communication of which I didn't know anything about, still kind of don't, right? But at the heart of all of our struggles in our marriage 
was this demand I was making on her to simply be the answer to the deepest longings of my soul on every level. So like, babe, no pressure. I just basically need you to be God. All my need for connection, connectivity, security, hope, joy, fulfillment. All I need you to do, honey, is just step into the gaping hole in my soul and fill it. Are you guys tracking with me? And so the problem was like, I'm asking her to do something she can't do. And the result of that was chaos. And so what Paul is saying here is, listen, marriage isn't king and autonomy isn't king. If you're married, your treasure is Jesus. If you're single, your treasure is Jesus. Because that's where identity and joy and delight is ultimately found. Um, there's not a lot of books I love about singleness. So let me read from one that I think is like, okay. Hope that doesn't get back to the author, but don't love it. It's okay. Helpful, but just okay. Here's what it says. When people choose to remain single for the sake of the kingdom of God, because they recognize that their true sufficiency is found only in their relationship to Christ and the coming of his kingdom, they orient their lives around this conviction. They become in their singleness visible signs of the coming age. Like, hey, there's a way to live your singleness with single-hearted devotion to Jesus that preaches the good news of Christ to the world, to the world. Second truth, second truth, which builds upon the first truth. Jesus is your treasure. And secondly, Jesus is to be obeyed for your joy. He's to be obeyed for your joy. Let me read you some of the words of Jesus in the gospel of John. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Hey, listen, that's a crazy statement. The limitless, unending, amazing height and depth of the Father's love for the Son, that's how the Son loves us. And that love leads to something. Look what he says, abide in my love. Don't run from it. Don't try to get free from it. Don't try to bob and weave away from it. Abide in my love. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Listen, any conversation around obeying the teachings of scripture that doesn't start with love and end in joy is off. But any conversation about obedience that doesn't have love and joy as the bread and as the meat, a life that's growing in conformity to the work of Jesus is also off. Jesus is saying, because you've been baptized in love, pursued with love, abide in the love of God through the grace of God, by the help of God in a life of obedience, that doesn't run from the love of God. And this is really, really important for both marriage and singleness. Because listen, it's so easy to think the grass is greener on the other side, right? There's married people, please don't raise your hand right now. We don't have the capacity for that much marriage counseling as a church. <laughs> but there's married people right now that fantasize and dream about singleness. What you could do with your hobbies, what you could explore, the options that would be available not getting in trouble for working too many hours or fill in the blank. 
I think the grass is greener. And there's single people, so many single people in our church that think that the grass is greener in marriage. If I was just married, all of these things that fill off in my life would come together. They'd all get fused and I'd be fixed. I'd be okay. And what Paul is actually saying is, listen, here's what you need to know. The way of Jesus is the way of a cross. He says, take up your cross daily and follow me. Which means the way of Jesus is a way of death that leads to participation and joy in life. It's dying to self so that you can live to Christ. What that means very practically in both the institutes of marriage and singleness is that selfishness gets slowly put to death when we walk out these vocations in obedience to Jesus. Jesus wants us to grow in joy. This is especially weighty for people in a culture that are told you can't have fulfillment or a depth of life or even be a full self if you're not able to express yourself sexually when and how you see fit. And the Bible, like, unless you just fold up the scripture into origami and make it be whatever you want it to be, the Bible's unequivocal that devotion to Jesus demands sexual fidelity. In the covenant of marriage, sexual fidelity is that sex can only be enjoyed between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. In singleness, it demands complete chastity, not just physically, but with our minds and our hearts. And that's not to try to tell you that there's no hope if you've messed up. The whole gospel is about hope for people that have messed up. But it's to say there's an invitation of Jesus to radical obedience in both marriage and singleness that sometimes feels like death. And in that death, we get to participate with Jesus. And we get to taste of the resurrection of Jesus. We're called to radical obedience. Number three, Christian singleness points to Jesus and expands his kingdom. Christian singleness points to Jesus and expands his kingdom. Let me read you a really, really bizarre section of scripture. You've got these Pharisees that lived in a culture where one camp of interpreters of the law believed in an any cause divorce. It was kind of an expression of a culture that was really misogynistic and didn't treat women with dignity and respect. So they had devised this way where husbands could get out of the covenant of marriage at any point for any reason whatsoever. And it was wreaking havoc in the lives of women and children. And so these teachers come to Jesus and they're like, hey, Jesus, can a man divorce his wife for any reason? For any reason. And Jesus talks about marriage, but I want you to pay attention to what he says about singleness, starting in 19 verse 11. He said to them, not everyone can receive this saying. If you've read Jesus, you know that he says a lot of hard, difficult things, right? So he's prefacing this by, hey man, this is going to be one of the harder things I say. Not everybody can stomach this, but only to those whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Okay, so listen. I don't really believe in, I think it's a myth to think that human history is just one 
unending chain of unbroken progress. Like I'm just, I'm just not a humanist. I don't know a lot of history, but I know that there's times of growth and then there's times where we just blow everything up and kill each other. Right. But I do think it's kind of a evidence of a little bit of growth that most of us don't know what eunuchs are. Right. Like, I don't want to go back to that. I don't want to go back to that, but Jesus is in a cultural moment where people would have heard the word eunuch and here's what they would have thought of. In royal courts, in royal courts, there were men that were castrated and they were castrated not just because of sexual expression, but they were castrated, listen, so that their agenda would not compete with the agenda of the king. Because what would happen in royal courts would be all kinds of drama where court officials would have offspring and they would start manipulating and politicking behind the scenes to try to get places of honor and position and resources for their biological family and their, their interests would be divided. Am I serving my king or am I serving the interests of my children and my grandchildren? So here's what Jesus says. There's eunuchs that were eunuchs by birth. He's talking about reproduction. There are people that are unable to have children. There are people that are eunuchs that are made eunuchs by men, those court officials. But then he says something crazy. He says, and there's people who become eunuchs by choice for the advance of the kingdom. Here's what he's saying. He's saying in the old covenant, the way the people of God expanded and grew was just through procreation. But in the new covenant, the way the kingdom of God expands is through the gospel being heard and believed. And he's saying, listen, singleness, when rightly understood, is a way for people in a season of life and at times for the totality of their life to be willing to forsake the blessings of marriage and the legacy of children in single-hearted devotion to Jesus. This is hard to hear. Nobody's like, hey, when are we going to start doing the signups for the how to make yourself a unit class? It's hard to hear. But what Jesus is saying is there's something beautiful about this that points to the kingdom of heaven, which is now and not yet. Let me read to a, a quick section from a guy named Stanley Hauerwas. Here's what he writes. Both singleness and marriage are necessary symbolic institutions for the constitution of the church's life. Marriage and singleness are both needed for the church to express her calling in the world. Neither can be valid without the other. If singleness is a symbol of the church's confidence in God's power to affect lives for the growth of the church, marriage and procreation is the symbol of the church's understanding that the struggle will be long and arduous. For Christians don't place their hope in their children, but rather their children are a sign of their hope. And God has not abandoned this world. Here's what's happening here. Singleness is not, it's not a time from the perspective of Jesus. It's not a time to either overwork for your own kingdom. I'm just going to remain single so that I can make the most amount of money so that I don't have a spouse to be mad at me that I'm working eight hours a week or to indulge recreation. Both of those are real in our church. There are especially single men in our church that need to be rebuked for the way that you do give yourself over to addiction to entertainment. One author put it, we love fake war and fake love. Fake war, what does that mean? 
It means instead of actually fighting for the good of a city, for the good of brothers and sisters, we indulge that need to risk with video games. And video games aren't sinful. Don't email me. I'll just send it to Charlie. In moderation, video games aren't sinful. But listen, if you're addicted, what's happening there? Well, you're trying to fulfill something that God put in your heart to actually live for a cause and make a difference and risk your life for something bigger than you. You're settling for a joke. And porn never has a common grace application. Porn just debases us. It debases men and women when they watch it. It debases the people that participate in it. It's fake love. It's like desire for intimacy and union that's not real. C.S. Lewis wrote about the great sin of masturbation is not just a physical act. It's that the whole point of the Christian life is to draw you out of yourself and into God and into others. And masturbation is a reversal of that that sends us back into ourselves. So for Jesus, singleness is this way that the city becomes a better place, that the church grows. And I love OKC, man. You know I'm an OKC homer. I love this city. My, my friends that live in bigger market cities, I'll fight with them all day long about how Oklahoma City will beat their city's butt. Like, like Philadelphia. <laughs> oh, New York. Yeah, cool. Great. Awesome. Lame. Doesn't have the thunder. Like, that's just me, man. I'll fight with anybody about that. But listen, Christian singleness demands that we don't just ask what makes a city great from a human perspective third spaces and being more walkable and great coffee and tap breweries. Like there's nothing wrong with all that. I like food as much as the next guy, but Christian singleness is called to be this beautiful commitment to fight for the things that Jesus loves and to sacrifice your life in ways with being undistracted based on the times and demands that marriage and children would give you. You're to get after it. Just swing for the fences. I got two more. I'll go quickly. Number four, singleness in Christ requires deep relationships. Let's get practical because Jesus is pro-singleness. He's anti-loneliness. That's good news. Jesus is pro-singleness, anti-loneliness. Let me read to you from the apostle Paul, who was a single man. He writes in 1 Timothy chapter five, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. The church is a lot of things. Bride of Christ, temple of God, right? Holy nations spread out through all the globe. Those are beautiful metaphors, but the primary metaphor that gets returned to again and again and again in scripture is the church is the family of God. And you can't live the Christian life in isolation. Would relate as brothers and sisters. And I, I just want you to do this thought experiment with me. Which would be more effective for OKC? If we did a huge evangelistic crusade and had the best preachers show up and awesome bands and pyrotechnics and a Jesus guy jumping his motorcycle over the stage to draw a crowd, would that impact Oklahoma City more? Or would it impact Oklahoma City more if the city saw men and women who were about the same age relating into the, in the purity and in the devotion of being siblings. 
Because I think our city would just have its mind blown to encounter men that just treat women like sisters in the Lord. I'm going to honor you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to be your friend. Like we live in this weird moment where some guys in conservative churches act like all women want to have sex with them. Like, dude, she doesn't want to have sex with you. You can talk to your sister. You can engage with your sister. You're supposed to talk to your sister. What would it look like if we related like brothers and sisters honoring each other? If women were like, hey, you're my brother. You're my brother. I'm going to I'm going to bring sisterly wisdom to you. I'm going to call you on your stuff sometimes. What would it look like if we had spiritual moms in our church that we loved and honored and respected? Paul's saying, Jesus is really pro. He's pro-marriage. He's pro-singleness. He's against isolation. Let, let me read you just a few more. Try to get the feel of Paul, a single man, and the way he loved the family of God. He writes in Philippians, for God is my witness how I yearn for you with the affection of Jesus Christ. Romans 15, this is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for you for years to come, he's about to come visit them. Or Romans 15, 30, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ, by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from unbelievers in Judea, that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. Now listen to this. So that by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. Or how about this? First Thessalonians 2, he writes, so being affectionately desirous of you. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves because you became very dear to us. Like, we don't even know what to do with language like that. One of the reasons we don't have a good theology of singleness is because we have a crappy theology of friendship. Lord of the Rings is one of my favorite books of all time. If you actually read it, you know what it's about? Friendship. What did Hollywood turn it into? It's all about sexual romance. It's about friendship. It's about communion. What Paul is saying is, hey, I'm so affectionately desirous of you that I long to be with you. It, straight dudes in the room, what would it be like if a brother said, hey man, I'm so affectionately desirous of you that I long for your company? I'm not even kidding. What he's unpacking is not a bunch of autonomous selves that occasionally attend church on a Sunday. He's unpacking the family of God that love each other and fight for each other and pray for each other and serve each other. The Bible is pro-singleness, anti-isolation. Let me do two more really fast. Number five, some people have the gift of singleness. Number six, all Christians are to see singleness as a calling. So some people have this unique gift, but all Christians that are single are called to see it as a calling. Let me show you two things in closing. First Corinthians seven, he says this. Now as a concession, not as a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, single. But each one has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Okay, listen, this is crazy. The word gift that he uses there is the same word charis 
that he uses to describe spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. So prophecy and tongues and gifts of healing, all those great gifts. He's including in that list of gifts, the gift of singleness. This is a real and unique thing that we should pray for and want in the church. It is, as defined by one author, this. It is the charisma of singleness, a spirit-enabled freedom to serve the king and the kingdom wholeheartedly without undue distraction for the longings of sexual intimacy, marriage, and family. We need this in the church. We need people with the gift of singleness that give their lives away for Jesus's family. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Well, I definitely don't have that gift. I really want to have sex. I really want to get married. So that means that I don't have the gift of singleness so I can do whatever I want while I'm single. No, wrong. Because even though you might not have the gift of singleness, and Paul says it's better to marry than to burn, you should pray for a spouse and look for a spouse as time is able. All Christians that are single should see it as a calling. Let me read this to you in closing. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 17. Let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Meaning, if you're married, you should see that as a holy calling that you didn't just come up with, but a sovereign God who works providentially brought you to your spouse. If you're a widow, you should see that frame of life, that way of life as an assignment from God, a vocation. If you're single in your teens, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, it doesn't matter. If you're single, it's not because God's withholding from you. It's not because God doesn't see you. If you're single, vocation calls you to see it as an assignment from God to be lived faithfully, be that singleness short or be that singleness for the rest of your life. Jesus loves you. He loves you. He loves us enough to give us the gifts of marriage and the gifts of singleness. Can we respond in love and receive the gifts he gives, not as means to pursue autonomy and selfishness, but as ways to die to self and grow to look more like Jesus.